All righty, everybody, let's get started here tonight. Have a word of prayer together as you make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 6, picking up where we left off last week, chapter 5, and now chapter 6. Heavenly Father, we always want to ask your blessing and your help uh, to understand your written word and We know it's God-breathed, we know it comes from heaven, and we know we need your help. So we open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Uh, Speak to us, Lord, because when you speak, there's life, and we want that life that's found in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And another proverb, a longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul. Now David's enjoying some of that sweetness of soul. Uh, he is now king over Israel after a 20 year arduous journey that had a lot of deferred hope and probably a, a lot of heart sickness as well. Um, Two decade long ordeal. Uh, And now Israel has gotten its act together, and there's one king, and they're united, and he's going to reign for 40 years. Now, we saw last week for a little bit of context there in chapter 5 that David's first um, act as king is very insightful. The first thing he wants to do is obey God in a commandment that went un obeyed, not obeyed for some 500 years, and the Jebusites are Canaanites who have, uh, uh, they're living in in a holdout there in Jerusalem. And so they're blessed because they've been given 400, 500 additional years to get right with God, Uh, not only to get right with God, but with the added plus of having the Israelites right there in the land for an extra four or 500 years. And so uh, they didn't take advantage of that, but uh, David went and uh, took Jerusalem and named it the city of David. Why did he do that? Why did he obey God as the first thing he wanted to do as king? Well, uh, chapter 5, we find out that uh, he is a man after God's own heart. Uh, I have found David a man after my own heart, the Lord speaking. He will do everything I want him to do. What a nice thing to be able to say about somebody who serves the Lord. He or she will do everything I want them to do. And usually about one of us, it would be uh, they will do almost everything I want them to do. So... The next thing he does is defend the people of God, because it's not about him. His job is to protect God's people, and uh, he's been given twin victories over the Philistines who were aggressing. And so uh, we see in the process, he's inquiring of God. God is answering him. The Lord is pleased. He's got success. Uh, David is learning and growing. Israel is being established again. The enemy is being defeated. But... As the saying goes, two steps forward, one step back. And so it's kind of true about uh, the collective people of God, isn't it? Congregations or individuals. We never really arrive. We're always, as Philippians chapter 3 says, we're always pressing forward, leaving the things behind, behind, and stretching and straining forward because we're not, we, we don't arrive until we see the Lord. So uh, we, we experience success and growth and blessing, and then inevitably a speed bump, uh, usually an attack from without, on the outside, spiritual warfare. And then we enjoy a lull. There's some peace and uh, blessing and growth. And then, boom, another time, now closer to home and a, a conflict within. We saw that with the exodus, the people of God on their way to the promised land. You know, at first it was uh, the armies of Pharaoh or the Amalekites from uh, without, and then uh, there'd be be a lull, 
and they would be at peace. And then there was a problem within with Korah's rebellion. And there's always something like that, uh, especially with the church in the book of Acts, peace and persecution. And then the church grows, and then there's a lull and some peace and persecution and problems and all of that. That's how it is in all of our lives. And we're just kind of used to that until we see him face to face. And so that's what's going on, even with a monarchy. So now that David is king, uh, chapter 5 was victory. The Philistines went running, as I said, and um, he's doing well, and Israel's all celebrating. Now it's time for a a celebratory parade, and and there's a lot of singing and dancing and joyous occasion here, and so we're going to read about that. But unfortunately, in the very act of praising God and celebrating, it leads to a death. And judgment, and the sound of rejoicing is turned to the sound of mourning. Verse, verses 1 through 11. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and harps and lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. A sistrum is a percussion instrument like a rattle. Uh, Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, or Uzzah, or was a. <laughs> I, I actually heard that was one of the pronunciations. I went online and they were like, was a. And I thought, that's not going to work. <laughs> was a. No, okay. Uh, I'm just going to call him Uzza, all right? I heard it three different ways. Uzza is the way I like it. Uzza reached out and took hold of the ark that was threatening to fall over. He took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outburst against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So let's pause there. Uh, Number one, the party's over in a most curious and tragic way. Uh, Amidst worshipful celebration of singing to the Lord, the Lord's people, singing and praising in a praise parade, comes to a screeching halt and in really a most curious and, like I said, tragic way. A lightning bolt from heaven really signals heaven's displeasure with something, and uh, it ends the celebration dead in its tracks. Well, David is moving the ark. Now, I have a, a picture of the ark. It's not the best one we've ever shown, but I'll tell you why I like it, because it, it shows you what's on the inside there. Now, the ark, you'll, you'll remember, we've talked about this a lot, but the, the word ark just means box or chest, and it was four feet by two feet by two feet, so not very big. It was really the heart of the temple worship before the temple was the tabernacle, the tent that was pre-temple. But this ark was kept, as you know, in the Holy of Holies place. So it tells the whole gospel story there. And you need to know um, 
why this is so reverent and so important, uh, because it will give an explanation for what follows. Uh, really, Leviticus 16 talks about Yom Kippur, Yom in Hebrew, the day Kippur to cover. And it really tells the whole story there. God's moral requirements, so three things inside the box, right? The Ten Commandments, and a jar with the manna, and Aaron's rod, you'll recall in number 17, uh, Aaron, uh, Aaron's authority to be involved in the priesthood was challenged. And so to show that there was one way that the Lord had provided salvation and chose a, a person and a family, uh, all of them had rods, and then only one of them budded and came to life. And so really it's the idea that God has chosen one way to bring everlasting life from the dead. And also the bread from heaven is Jesus coming down from heaven, who said in John chapter 6, I am that was a picture of me coming down to give my life, my flesh, as bread to you, as a ransom payment that will bring you life. And also, uh, on top there, in between, God said, I will meet you there. This is the heartbeat of everything. Yes, God would be present in the people's prayers and worship, but there was a special place there where God said, I will meet you there, the blood from the sacrifice once a year by the right man would go through the temple curtain and put it on top, which was called the mercy seat, just the cover. Because the moral requirements, the Ten Commandments, are, are, are saying, this is my contract with you. If you want to come to heaven, if you want to know me, if you want to walk with me, here are the rules. That's my contract. But since you've broken them, then we need a death. And the blood is put there, and there's a covering, Yom Kippur, you're covered. And so the Lord says, I'm free to meet with you and you with me because of this. And here's the gospel story right here. But you know what? All throughout the scriptures, that place is called the throne of God. And you'll see in your text, thank you for that picture. Uh, there's no trivial matter. You'll see in your text there in verse 2, the ark represented the name. And then it says, the presence of the Lord Almighty, which is the God of heaven's armies there in the Hebrew, enthroned. It's his throne, 1 Samuel 4 and 2 Kings uh, chapter 19. He actually calls it his throne. So, so that's very important to know. This is where God's saying, this is a, a representation of my throne. Now, uh, David wants Israel to be alive and sense the near presence of, of the Lord and the glory of God. And that's because David is a man after God's own heart, right? And so uh, he's in Jerusalem. He's got a palace. But where's the ark? The ark has been gone for 70 years, parked in a private residence. And so David wants to centralize Jerusalem as the place for all of Israel to come and worship the Lord. And he wants the Lord's presence near him as well. He's like, you know, I've got Jerusalem and, and the Lord is with me. Uh, and I've got a palace, but what good is it if, if I don't sense the presence of God close and, and in my heart and in my life? And really, that's the joy of heaven, isn't it? I mean, it's not just escaping hell, or, and it's not just living in God's garden paradise, which it will be, but it's because he's there. The horror, the nightmare of hell is because there will be a human soul without the maker of that soul. That is the horror of hell, but the joy of heaven is having his presence. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, the last verse of that psalm. And so David, that's, he's, he's, he just wants the Lord's presence. And so his heart motive is great. Everybody's happy. They're singing praises. They've got the right thing to do, but they're going to do it in the wrong way. When you do the right thing in a wrong way, it makes the right thing a wrong thing. Amen? Did you follow that? Yeah. All right. So David uh, gathers the best soldiers, uh, and uh, they head off to get the ark because they want Jerusalem to be the capital place for worship in David's new home city. 
So you might be asking yourself, where was the ark? Where's the ark? And I love when you ask such good questions. <laughs> so I'll tell you, one of the reasons I think David has gone after is because it's parked right on the border of Philistine territory. So now he's just had twin uh, victories over the Philistines. So he's thinking, well, they're going to go after the ark. And it's right there on the border. And so he's going to go and bring the ark for several reasons. But one, I think, is to bring it into a safe place up on the hill there with him in the city of David. Well, the ark, 70 years from this text ago, prior to this text, 70 years, 1 Samuel 5 through 7, uh, the Philistines plundered Israel, you'll remember, and they carried off the ark. And do you remember where they kept it, right? They parked it in their temple across from the big statue of Dagon, right? And then they came in the next day and Dagon was worshiping uh, face down. And then they propped him up again, like, whoops, you must have fallen over. It must have been windy in here last night. <laughs> and so the second day they come in and he's fallen over again, but his hands and his head are decapitated. And so there was a little message there from heaven. And so they still didn't get it, so they moved the ark to a different city, and everybody broke out in these nasty tumors. And, and the word for tumors there in the Hebrew uh, is embarrassing. And, and so I don't even, even why I said that. Just tumors should, tumor should have been enough. But um, it's painful. It's a plague. It's a lot of panic. So they load up the ark, the Philistines do, and uh, they put some gold tumors and golden little rats in there as a sin offering. You know how, how unbelievers think. You know, it's good luck, whatever. And so they put it on a wooden wagon and hitch it to a couple cows, and the cows had just calved, and that was one of the things that they wanted to see, if the cows would go back to their calves, or would they go straight to, to some territory over? Well, they went straight to Israel, and they, they left their calves behind. Uh, so the Israelites got the ark back, right on the border town, and they parked it in Abinadab's garage. And it had been in there, it had been in there collecting dust for 70 years, all right? So maybe it wasn't a garage, all right? It was a little place. Thank you. All right, so moving on. David and his uh, multitudes now travel from Jerusalem nine miles north to go get the ark. They pull up at Abinadab's place. They load the ark on a brand new cart to show respect. You know, come on, man. This is the throne of God. Let's just build a brand new cart, you know, fancy and make him all happy. And herein lies the problem. As I mentioned, doing a right thing in a wrong way makes the right thing dreadfully wrong. This is the throne of God. And God said a couple things. They have two problems. They're sinning in two different ways. One is Exodus 25. The poles were never to be removed because he wanted it only his presence born on the shoulders of human beings. He wanted his presence to be in the hearts and lives. And number two, of those who are right with him, specially chosen, that's where he belongs. He belongs on the lives of those who have been chosen and elected in him and walking with him. Numbers chapter 4 said it's only a certain chosen person and it's also to be carried by uh, men, not to be putting on some cart. So no es bueno what they have done. They have done a very bad thing. There are no Levites carrying it, number one. There's no human presence, there's no human heart, there's no connection to, to man. Instead, the poles are removed, the cart, is, the cart is just a regular cart to haul a bale of hay or a pile of manure. And so they put it in there, just put it on this dead, cold piece of wood and, 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 and hitch it to some cows. So the thing right in front of the ark is the rear end of two cows, you know. So are you getting the picture? I, I hope you're getting the picture because it wasn't as nice. So, oh, it's a brand new cart. 
but there were some problems uh, there. Now, where did they get that idea? The brand new cart. Hitch it up to some cows in a wooden cart. Now, who just did that? The Philistines sent it back on a wooden cart with a couple of cows. So they said, you know, times have changed. It's a new day, and this is the way the world's doing it. Man, God, this is the way we do it. We build carts now. Welcome to, you know, uh, technology. God, get, get used to it. This is what we do. We don't do it the old school fashioned way. We have carts now. And it was good enough for them. We didn't strike any of them dead. It worked for the pagans. So we're going to kind of work it in here to our worship routine. And then we're going to sing really loud so that you possibly will get distracted that we're not doing the right thing. And maybe we won't hear the still small voice that's telling us that we're doing it the wrong way. So let's pull out all the stops. We'll sing at the top of our lungs. We'll play really loudly so God won't notice that we're cutting some corners, imitating pagans, dishonoring him, and obeying, disobeying his word. That's the way it is. So verse 4 says they're worshiping with all their mind in the praise parade, uh, singing, playing all sorts of instruments. Um, David and Israel's hearts, sincere. Motives, good, but they're misinformed and their spiritual neglect and as a result of their own lack of due diligence. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 2, uh, the Lord's, uh, Paul, speaking about the Lord's people, the Jews, says, I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. So they have an emotional desire, they have an enthusiasm uh, for God, but it is misdirected zeal. And so they make this new cart, you know, probably it's premeditated because they build it, and no one checks the word of God. We're just going to go with our feelings. Uh, Our hearts are right. So... Nobody checked the word of God. So David is thinking, one writer put it this way, this is a new day. I'm sure God can see that we always carry things on carts nowadays. And maybe even they said in their hearts, God is doing things in a new way today. So we have this fancy, innovative, uh, impressive cart. Now, you know, that kind of reminds me of things, you know, maybe it's okay today. God's doing a new thing Uh, You know, maybe we could roll around on the floor during worship like we're all having seizures. It's a new thing God is doing. You know, or maybe we can all say that we have gold uh, caps in our teeth. That God just gave us gold caps. Or, Or look at your hands, you see angel gold dust because God is doing a new thing. What is it with the people of God? They just think if it's a new cart, it must be okay. It's brand new. It's a new thing. It's fresh. What is God doing that's new? God doesn't do anything new without it being in the confines of his eternal word. Because if it's new and it's outside of the gospel, it's not a new good thing. It's a new bad thing. God does everything within the confines of the gospel and the word of God. It's, uh, you know, we just think it's fine to amend some of the less politically uh, correct uh, things about the gospel. And so because it's just uh, a new day, this is a day when we don't talk about hell or sexual immorality. Well, that just... Not going to work. So uh, here's what one writer said. Christians who don't read their Bibles often or very closely are the ones blown here and there by every new thing and by the cunning of men and their deceitful scheming. Their hearts go astray easier without the anchor of God's word in their hearts. Malnourished sheep are always looking for something new instead of a fresh way of carrying out something biblical. 
fresh and innovation and, and ingenuity to gospel truths is a beautiful thing. John Wesley said, it's not a new thing the church needs. It's new fire for renewed holiness. Uh, so apparently uh, Israel's been missing church for more than a few Sundays, and they missed the whole chapter of Exodus 25 and Numbers 4, so disaster strikes now, and that's too bad. So we get to the lightning in verse 6. Uh, it happens on a threshing floor, which, which is so fitting. The threshing floor is where the winnowing fork goes in, where you divide the good wheat from the husk and the chaff gets piled up and burned away. And in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist says that's going to be Jesus' ministry. Jesus comes and he's going to divide good and productive from bad and useless. And so right there, there's a lot of chaff in this parade. And the Lord is going to uh, blow that away and get their attention. So bang, the fire falls. The cow stumbles the ark goes to tumble, and Uzzah reaches out with an instinct to steady the ark, and he falls dead. He drops to the ground like a fly that just got swatted. Now, how uh, ironic to touch the mercy seat and die. That's what he did, because he didn't touch the mercy seat in God's appropriate way. Cain came with approaching God to the mercy seat to find mercy and saying, look, it's based on my efforts here. Look, what a wonderful job I've done. You, you can't get mercy that way. There's only one way to get mercy from God. It's to comply with the, with the methods and the ways that he has prescribed for you to obtain mercy. There's no way you can't tell God, like the bumper sticker says, God bless all of us. Underlined, all of us, God bless everyone, because we want to be blessed. Well, you can be blessed by God, and God does bless. But you have to come under and comply and obey the way that God has. So did God overreact? Please do not entertain the thought. You know, oh, God, what a big meanie. You know, Uzzah just trying to lend a hand. And what was he supposed to do? The poor guy, you know, your ark, you know, he saved you, God, from falling four feet, you know. And this is how you repay him. You just, boom, strike him dead. Wow. You know what I say? I say, I'm surprised that the whole crowd didn't get a spanking. And let alone just one like that. I think it's amazing grace, actually, considering what they did. So as loud as it must have been, I think it got that quiet. You probably could have heard a pin drop, you know, and the Lord is just having one of those, do I have your attention now moments? And, you know, you could get those moments uh, with loss like this or with blessing and gain. You know, in John, what is it, chapter 21 and verse 6, the Lord tells the guys to, once again, second time, throw your nets on the other side. They didn't catch anything all night, and they start tugging, and the nets are totally full, and they have a, do I have your attention now, moment. And those are better. You can have them when you obey, and God pours out his blessing, and you go, ah, connecting, obedience, blessing. Or disobedience and loss and have your aha moment where he says, do I have your attention? So Uzzah, he erred in a few things. He erred in thinking that it didn't matter who carried the presence of the Lord. He erred in thinking it didn't matter how the presence of the Lord should be carried. Uzzah erred in presuming he knew everything about these things since he grew up with the ark in his house. Oh, the ark, are you kidding me? That was in, it was parked in my dad's house. I grew up with it. I saw it every day. I walked by it every day and know how to do this. Put it on a cart, crying out loud. Yeah, that was a mistake, you know, presumption. And uh, Uzzah erred because he wasn't related to Aaron. He wasn't supposed to touch the ark. He did. He had good human reasons for it, but lousy theological ones. So ultimately, David is going to bear the blame here in verse 8. Uh, because it always goes back to the leader, you know? And so he's mad. He has a twofold reaction. Verse 8, David's angry like a hornet. 
You messed everything up. We're having this beautiful party, and, and we're praising your name, and we're doing this for the Ark of the Covenant, and bam, you just rained on my parade, and uh, he's not very happy. Proverbs 19, verse 3 says, A man's folly ruins his own life, but he blames the Lord. How does it go? Yet his heart rages against the Lord. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. His second reaction, verse 9, David's afraid. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) and it's the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. Uh, Now David has a deep respect for God's power. And he says there, it's kind of funny, how is this ever going to work? How am I, how am I going to take this? I can't call a tow truck. Now what am I going to do? I, I mean, I'm stuck here. I, if I go to move it, somebody's going to die. Maybe me. You know, so he just leaves it. At, at, I find it kind of funny in verse 10 that he offloads the ark on some dude, Mr. Odom, Obed-Edom, Mr. Odom. <laughs> And, and so say, dude, I got a, I got a present for you. <laughs> I got a present. The law, it's a, we call it the hot potato. All right. So you just got to be real gentle with it. All right. And I'm uh, not sure quite what the problem is. God's not happy. We don't know totally. We haven't opened the scrolls yet. But you just better mind your peas and goose. <laughs> and so he, he, he leaves it at his house, which is interesting. Um, yeah. So David... Uh, so interesting, he leaves it at a qualified Aaronite, a Levite. He leaves it at the right guy's house. Oh, so you did know. Oh, yeah. We always find this out, don't we? We always find out later in the chapter. Oh, and then they did it the right way because they actually knew but didn't want to go through it all, you know. So just like us. We always know. We kind of know. We always kind of know. So in verse 11, Mr. Uh, Edom's house is blessed. He strikes the jackpot because it's parked in the house, and there's a big connection with the parking of the ark there and great blessing, which is always the way it works when God's presence is honored in our hearts and homes. There's always going to be blessing. Well, let's finish the story. 12 through the end of the chapter. So now King David was told, hey, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David, relieved, went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So here we go, round two. When those who were carrying the ark, ah, very good, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Just, just, just being careful here. Every six steps for nine miles. That's a lot of barbecues going on there. Verse 14. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts, And the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Jerusalem, Michal, daughter of Saul, his wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings, fellowship offerings before the Lord. That's another phrase for barbecue time, worship service time. Offerings were meant to bring people in the presence of God with a feast. And so it is a real joyful time here. It's like a holiday. Verse 18, after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, that's just the music to let you know something bad is going to happen. I know, I get weird sometimes. Around the same time every night. When David returned home, (laughs) when David returned home to bless his household, 
Those public duties are over. It's time to go home to the home fires. Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. <laughs> David said to Michal, number one, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. Number two, I will celebrate before the Lord. And number three, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. And P.S., by these slave girls you spoke about, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So first we saw the party was over because of disobedience, and now the party resumes because of obedience. Now, funny thing the Lord was saying when he blessed Mr. Obed-Edom's house for having the ark there. What was he saying? He was saying, everybody, it wasn't me. It was you. The problem was you, not me. User error has occurred because now suddenly everything's going very well for this man who's housing the ark. Now, David cracked open his Bible, apparently did some reading, and we don't have any words of repentance, which I really like. You just see action. You know what? <laughs> the whole world is filled with words about how you're going to change and how sorry you are it happened and it'll never happen again. And you know what I'm going to do from now on? Please stop talking. And do what David does. You don't hear a lot of talking. You just see, oh, they're carrying in their Levites. That's how we show we're really repenting. Not here, but by our lives changing and doing God's will. And so we see it's being born by flesh and blood. It's carried, not carted. The boys are qualified, certified Levites. Everything's kosher. Every six steps, which... He's thinking like a Sabbath rest and a celebration, a sacrifice. Now, about the linen ephod, you know, you've probably heard something that is false about that. That is not his underwear. He's not in his underwear. I've heard that preached, that he's in his linen undergarments. He is dressed as every priest in the parade is. He's in normal priest clothing. Nobody's thinking... He's in his linen undergarments, like I've heard preached several times. The rest of the priests, he's in normal clothes. All he did was take off his royal robes. He was wearing two sets. He's wearing his royal robes, and he was wearing priest's garments. And so, yeah, that's what's going on here. He's not a priest, but he's a worship leader. So they're going to let him wear the priestly Garments. There's this joyful celebration. David is a worship leader. He's a priest in that regard. The trumpets are blaring in verse 14, the shouts of praise, and he's dancing with all his might. Can you imagine the emotion? It's hit him now. 20 years hiding in holes and caves, running from a madman that God saved him time after time after time. He recalls being in the sheep pen, you know, as a teenager, kind of despised by his brothers, overlooked by his father, just a nobody. And God just found him in the sheepfold, came to him. He wasn't looking. And, and now all of this, he's looking and he's seeing God is with me. I'm leading them in battle. The Philistines run for their lives when they see me. I'm sitting on a throne of God's people. That is incredible. So he's just overwhelmed. He's the king in a palace. He's so grateful. And you know what happens when you're grateful and you really get it, how good God has been to you? It overflows. You become generous. That's what's going on with the gifts to everybody and the dancing with all his might. He's going to give back. The Lord said to Peter, if you love me, express your love for me by, by tending to my people generously give and use your gifts and callings to show me that you love me by, by, by taking care of those I died for. 
What a beautiful expression of giving those gifts to God's kids and just saying, God, you've been so good to me. It's, it's a moment of splurging and everybody's going to go home with food and satisfied tummies and uh, such happiness. Uh, when I was in uh, UCSF having a bone marrow transplant for a couple months, for two months I couldn't, uh, I was out of reach with, from my kids. And I've told the story before. But I'll tell you what, ki- uh, people from the church at Calvary Petaluma uh, ministered and reached out to my kids when I was out of reach. I couldn't do it. But I'd talk on the phone and I would hear about so-and-so brought us to Disneyland, Dad. And so-and-so, I knew I'd get uh, emotional about it. So-and-so took me hunting, Dad. And what did you do today? Well, so-and-so came over and they spent the whole day and, and they got us a jump house or they brought over a go-kart and people were ministering to my kids. It was a, the highest love ever expressed to me was how they cared for what was most important to me, my wife and kids. And, you know, the Lord has a wife, a bride. And to show him our love, to lay down our lives for his wife, his bride, and his children, both metaphors work. So the next time you want to say, God, I want to show you how much I really love you, it's really nice to sing out in a loud, clear voice, but it's really nice also to do something practical for those God loves like that. And so he says, everybody come and get some uh, dates and some raisins and a loaf of bread. Just wonderful. I just love the lesson there with, um, in Luke chapter 7, the Pharisees were sitting at a table and some sinful woman came in out of her mind and distraught and extremely loving Jesus and, and, and was washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair and wouldn't stop kissing his feet at this table filled with Pharisees having a dinner with Jesus. And Simon says, Simon the Pharisee says in his heart, there in Luke 7, to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd understand how sinful this woman is. And Jesus said, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And Simon says, speak, master. (laughs) That's exactly how it goes. (laughs) And the Lord said, well, there was a guy, two guys owed this one man money. One owed 50 bucks. The other guy owed 500 bucks. And neither of them could repay. So the master said, you know what, I'm going to excuse both of you. So Simon, which one do you think loved the man more? The one with the little debt or the one with the big debt? And he said, I suppose. (laughs) Whenever you hear I suppose, you know it's just not a willing party on board. All right. I suppose it's the one with the greater debt. And he says, you answered correctly. You know what, Simon? I came in here. You didn't wash my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You didn't offer me a greeting. She kissed me, not here, but she's been kissing my feet while I'm telling you the story. Because she who is aware of what the Lord has done in her life loves a lot. But you also have a bigger debt than she, but you don't even realize that. You don't realize. And so you love little. David here is dancing before the Lord with all his might, and he's giving out gifts, and he's out of his mind with love for God because he remembers who he is without God's grace and what a debtor he is to God's amazing love and mercy and compassion and honor to take a kid out of a muddy field and put him on the throne. That's an amazing thing, and that's what happened to him. He's, he understands how much he's been forgiven. So he comes home. The home fires obviously need some fanning. You know, and as often is the case, God can do astonishing things in our hearts and lives, in us and through us, in ministry, in service unto him, 
at a place of employment, accomplishments at church, retreats, in secular life as well. And then we go home and there's a sudden distinct change in spiritual climate. Now, David has had an eventful day. His public duties are over. And he's ready to share it with his soulmate, the one who matters most. But in verse 16, from the palace window, Michal sees the processional entering Jerusalem and sees her husband uh, leaping and embarrassing her. Apparently, she's jealous or insecure or self-absorbed. I didn't have the time to figure her out. But, uh, you know, her, her father sort of warned us. Her father said, how am I going to mess David up? I know what I'll do. I'll give him me call, my daughter. She'll be a snare to him. So dad knew for the potential of what we're seeing now. And so we see it in full bore here. Now, I just want to say, verse 16, she despised him in her heart. That's a bad move in marriage. Um, contempt... <laughs> Contempt kills. Contempt kills a relationship dead. Here's what she says. So that was a big thrill, huh? Undressing for the young ladies in the crowd like that, a big thrill. Like any other low life. How distinguishing. And so there's a hint there that what was going on was immoral sexual urges rather than a zeal for God. The word in the Hebrew uh, is uh, worthless. You're worthless. Uh, she's really calling him a pervert. Um, I think his whole day could have been ruined by these remarks. I think uh, no good deed really goes unpunished, as they say. Um, and... Here's what he has to say. He says four things, four quick statements. Number one, he states the facts. Uh, it was for the Lord and not the servant girls. Number two, he justifies his behavior. Uh, it was fitting for me, given the role God has put me in. So he justifies his behavior and a little dig with that instead of your father comment. And then number three, he is human. He's a human being, all right? So... He just kind of <laughs> slipped one in there, you know. <laughs> Number three, uh, he expresses his future intentions. I will uh, intend to continue to worship the Lord in extravagant ways. And number four, he explains his rationale. He says, you think that was embarrassing? Uh, you haven't seen anything yet because I could care less how humiliating my love for God might make me appear to others. Now, Take really good note of this. He's not talking about acting in inappropriate, bizarre ways. Everyone in the crowd was dancing. He wasn't the only one. He's dancing just like Jewish uh, uh, Orthodox men do today. He was doing something that everybody else was doing, but he was doing it with all his might. So he wasn't doing anything strange or that would call attention to him in a setting where there is no dancing. Do you see? What he's saying is, you know what's going to get more, even more bizarre? He's going, look, my love for God will put me in a vulnerable place. It always does. I mean, when you're, uh, if you raise your hands or if you cry, or it's not just in the worship service he's talking about. He's talking about how I live my life. In worshipful responses always puts you at kind of a vulnerable place. When you're worshiping God and you're not going with the jokes and everything, it, it puts you in an embarrassing light. When you're the one who has to, in your whole class, stand up and say, excuse me, but uh, I, bear to, uh, I want to contradict what you're saying here. Out of your worshipful response and love to God. It just puts us in an embarrassing light to walk with, with God and Christ who offends the whole planet. And so he says, look, I'm ready to be humiliated in my own eyes. And so when I'm standing in front of a classroom and I have to say something that makes me feel embarrassed or different from everybody else because I'm worshiping the Lord, I'll embarrass myself. 
I'll feel that shame and I'll live, I'll walk right through because of my love for him. Now, uh, number five, the sad irony, uh, he says, and by the way, the slave girls will honor me, but you dishonor me. Uh, He says, everyone else thinks I'm okay but you. Everybody thinks good thoughts about me except you. And then it says, the last verse, verse 23, Mikal has no children, but note carefully. The word is not barren. She is not judged. She has no more children because the process by which you conceive has ceased to happen. Did you all get that? The bedroom candles no longer burn bright. And why? Because she called her man worthless. She disrespected him and called him a lowlife. I'll tell you what, ladies, number one thing, a man has a really hard time recovering from a dig at respect and admiration of him by you. When, when that is lost, it takes a miracle for a man to recover from that. You, ladies, you don't understand. It's, it's, like, it's like you needing to be loved and cherished when you feel that's gone. It's the same thing. The Lord says, ladies, unconditionally respect that man. We're talking about a sane, level-headed, normal human being here, all right? Uh, And some of you went, well, whoops, there goes that. (laughs) All right, unconditional. I can't respect him unconditionally. Excuse me but you're worthy of unconditional love as Christ loved the church unconditionally. That's what we have to do for you. So if you say, well, I can't respect him like that because I, he hasn't earned my respect, then you better start working harder to earn the love that we have to have for you. Don't mess with the man's respect. And men, don't mess with a woman's need to feel loved and cherished or you're just cutting the throat of your own marriage. That's what happens here. It could have been a really nice evening. It really could have been, but it went south in a really bad way, all right? We all have that choice when it's building up and he's on the way home or she's on the way home and the thoughts are going and you're starting and the Holy Spirit's going, why don't we do something else? Why don't we take a walk? Why don't we change the subject? Why don't you put on some music? Why don't you do anything but where you're headed? You got a choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great chapter of insights. We pray that you apply them to our hearts and lives in Jesus' name. Amen.